Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest Empire Podcast spoiler special. This one is dedicated to the latest slice of Disney Pixar goodness, the rather beautiful, hugely ambitious, jazzerific slice of existential examination that is... Soul. Now this is going to be a two-part spoiler special. The second part will see Team Empire try to get to grips with all the myriad big questions posed by and big themes tackled by this extraordinarily inventive movie. But this first part belongs to the filmmakers. I recently jumped onto Zoom, so yes, there may be the odd bit of audio ducking and dipping here and there. Sorry about that, it's beyond our control. With the trio of big brains behind this movie, Pete Docter, Kemp Powers and Dana Murray. First off, you're going to hear from Pete Docter, who not only is the director of and the driving force behind Soul, but is also the chief creative officer of Pixar. And for my money, he's directed some of the animation studio's very best movies, Monsters Inc., Up and Inside Out, all of which share DNA to an extent with Soul. So here it is. Here's my conversation with Pete, in which we talk about the beginning of the movie, the end, how they are in sync, and the various roadblocks in between, including a major overhaul of the film at one point. Oh, and also you can hear Pete's dog at one point. Sadly, unlike Doug from Up, he wasn't transfixed by a squirrel. Here we are, me talking to Pete Doctor. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on this Soul Spoiler special by the film's director, Pete Doctor. How are you, sir? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I Thank guess you. This is coming out after Christmas, but hey, nope. Merry Christmas. Let's not ruin okay. the illusion too much. Um, yeah. <laughs> Pete, I have to say this film taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about living in the moment, about being, about being present, but mainly it taught me never to get my hair cut by a cat. <laughs> good advice. That is true. <laughs> Although what if it's a cat with the, who's embedded with the spirit of a human being? I don't know. Maybe there's an exception. Is there a, a test you can do to discern this beforehand? I mean, how do you know if a, if a cat is possessed by a human being? Yeah, I don't know. We tried to come up with something, but we have we've failed us so far. So <laughs> we'll talk about Mr. Mittens uh, in a few minutes as well. Okay. Um, basically, I wanted to start with that unique interpretation of uh, "Wish Upon a Star," which starts the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was yeah. was was that something that was always in the script? Was that something that you uh, you maybe had pushback on from certain parties at Disney, or was it always taken in the spirit in which it was intended? No, they they were pretty pro. They were pretty uh, in in favor of it. It was pretty fun. You know, the beginning of the film is always a, a really key moment because you, you this is your chance to either hook the audience or lose them. You know, and uh, we thought, yeah, what if we take that Disney logo and and play it? You know, Joe is at this point our main character is a, a middle school band teacher. So what if we have a real middle school band play it? Well, we had a real middle school band play the logo music, and they were so good that the joke was lost. So we had to bring in the best musicians in the world from Hollywood to come in and play badly, and they did brilliant. Uh, they were brilliant <laughs> at it, and and uh, of course they can play brilliantly as well. But the, that that beginning of the movie, it's it's really fun the way the, the way it starts because I think it throws a lot of people. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it really does. It really does. It's like, this is about good music, this movie, isn't it? I, mean, I thought this was about yeah. jazz. What the hell is this? But uh, but I think I think a lot of the movie is contained in that opening scene. The, a lot of the themes of that movie is contained in that opening scene. You have this idea of, you know, you very, very quickly get this, this idea of Joe's connection to music. You get his excitement at seeing Connie being able to play, which is huge for him, because that's something he doesn't acknowledge until later on, that that's almost his purpose. That's his spark, you know, being a mentor yeah. for people. Yeah. Um, can you talk about layering that opening scene and uh, as a sort of foreshadow, a support end of what will come? I mean, typically for us, the opening scenes, uh, you don't want to put those into production first because they will be some of the last ones to come into focus. Um, okay. Because, and I, you know, this is not a rule or anything, but boy, when you can find those opening scenes that are like the movie in miniature that, as you say, have, have a lot of the thematic elements or 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 even some hint of where it's going to go. Uh, I think that's where it really sets it, it. It tees the audience up to know, like, out of everything in the universe, here's what I'm supposed to focus on. You know, it's these elements, these um, themes and so on. So uh, I think we had a couple of other ideas entirely until we and then we came up with this idea of the classroom and that in itself went through, I don't know, 30 or 40 different drafts of the script, trying to find like how much, because if you look at real middle schoolers there, it's a really delicate balance. They're pretty mean, right? Yeah. Real middle yeah. schoolers can be awful. Um, but if the teacher is awful back to them, you suddenly lose empathy for him. So we, we really struggled to find the right balance of how could we show them being bored without making the audience bored? And yeah, there's a lot of back and forth. So at what point, I mean, you, you, you said there, you know, there was a sentence you said there, uh, uh, out of all the things in the universe, finding something to focus on, which again is one of the messages of the movie. It's one of the themes of the movie. And at what point did that lock into place for you? Not just the opening scene, the, the point where you go, okay, now I know enough about my movie to know what the opening scene is going to be, but that general message. The message was there from the beginning. So um, for me, I've been a fan of animation since I was like eight. You know, I started making flip books in the corners of my math book and loved it ever since. And I've been working, you know, for 40 years now making animated stuff. And then after Inside Out, which uh, was a great success, I mean, we were so lucky that people, audiences loved it. We got awards, we got, you know, nice recognition from critics and box office and all this. And after that, I remember thinking, well, now why don't I feel like I've everything has fallen into place? Why don't mm -hmm. I feel like everything is perfect in my life? Because the narrative we've always been taught is find what you love, do it, and you'll never work a day in your life. The sort of implication is that's going to be the answer to your to life. And yet it's not. So I don't want to say that it's wrong. Right. Yeah. I think that there is a lot of joy and value from finding and pursuing those passions. But there is more. And so the themes of the film really reflected my own uh, a journey as a as a as an animator as a filmmaker, you know, giving Joe exactly what he thinks he wants as this, you know, finally he's able to succeed. And this being the spoiler special podcast, I can give away. You know, we we intentionally drove right there at the end of Act Two. We hand him what he's been dreaming of through the whole movie, and it doesn't satisfy him in the way he thinks that it will. And mm. so, where do you go from there? Yeah. Uh, there's an emptiness to him as he suddenly realizes, oh, hang on a second. Is this 
maybe this isn't right. Maybe this isn't what I was yeah. meant to do all this all this time. And it leads to, I think, the most beautiful sequence in the in the film, which is when he gets back in the zone and he realizes his purpose in life. Can you talk about that scene at the piano where he's composing everything and he's he's stimulated by the detritus of his past? Yeah. Yeah, that was um, one of those hunches that I had early on, like, okay, how are we going to answer this for him and where is he going to find that answer? And so it felt right that he would be at the piano, he would take the sheet music that he's been trying to play by notes and put it aside and basically now improvise as he plays his life as represented through these objects that have been collected. Mm. You know, and they're all from things that he would have ignored Otherwise, like before the movie started, a seed or a leaf falling in his hand or, you know, old uh, pops uh, uh, lollipop from the mm. barbershop where he goes, all these things that basically represent the life he's been living but ignoring and now recognizes as that is the stuff of life. That is, you know, what we'll remember, I think, uh, on our deathbed and and uh, and that truly is emotionally the important things. It's not winning awards and achieving, you know, I mean, those are important, too, and, and can be very fulfilling. But on a daily basis, and I've struggled to do this every day, but uh, you can lean into it in a way that makes you more alive than uh, this is all so it all sounds so hokey when i talk about it which i guess is why we had to make a movie about it no i i know exactly what you mean and it's 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 such a fascinating movie in how still it is and how quiet it is and how confident you have to be as a director in an animated movie where there are expectations of crashes and bangs and whiz and you know things going off every five seconds <laughs> to take those moments to breathe in and the very last line of the movie, for example, is Joe saying, I, know I'm gonna, I'm, I do know I'm going to live every minute of it. And the very last thing we see him do is breathe. And I mm -hmm. think that's incredibly important as well. So how difficult is that to get across in this medium in particular? <laughs> well, I think it's probably... I don't know if it's any more or less difficult than in any other. There, there's pitfalls on both sides of it. You know, when you take mm -hmm. on something like this, you and we, we've tipped into this and maybe even in the final film, according to some people, did, do you get too self-important and, and, you know, big headed and, um, uh, and, and then on the other side, do you ignore it and do you trivialize it too much? So you're finding that balance in general, you know, we we're we're very aware that Pixar films are for, uh, everybody, you know, and that mm -hmm. parents are going to be bringing their kids um, to these movies. So you want to make sure that there's enough for them. Yet, I see no reason why uh, animation shouldn't be used to investigate some of these big themes, right? There's no reason why not. I, I'm always fascinated by filmmakers' choices in terms of how they close their movies. And mm. you start your movie with that, that rendition of When You Wish Upon a Star. You finish it with Joe essentially looking straight at the cameras, breathing, smiling, and getting a second chance at life as well. Can you talk about ending the movie in that way? It's cool to geek out with you about this because, uh, you know, we were, I was very proud that we opened the film and it's like basically like this, a shot on Joe mm -hmm. and he's grimacing. And the end of the movie is the same shot, but he's smiling and he's he's in embracing all the things that he was kind of pushing off. Um, and so there's I'm, we're intentionally trying to go for that symmetry um, mm -hmm. in the filmmaking. Um, it was also something that, you know, as we set up this question of 
should Joe be a teacher or should he be a professional musician? That if you come down on one side of it or the other, you ignore the deeper um, surprise revelation of the story, which is it doesn't matter. Either one could be made into something of value. And this is something, you know, we actually learned from this this Herbie Hancock story that he told about, you know, the great jazz pianist. He had played with Miles Davis and he told this great story about being on tour. And he said, we were having a great tour and this was like the pinnacle concert of the whole tour. And then in the middle of the song, Herbie plays this chord and he says, it was so wrong. I thought I had reduced that great night to rubble and ruined the whole show. And he said, but instead what happened was Miles looked over, took a breath, and he said, he made my chord right. And he said, I could not figure out how he did that. But, you know, he said, here's how he did it. He didn't judge what I had played. He just took it as something new that had happened. And he tried to do what any great jazz musician should try to do, which is to take anything that happens and turn it into something of value. Yeah. That was like, whoa, that's exactly what we're trying to say with the movie. You know, we're trying to tell people that in any situation they can make something more of what they have. That's that's really interesting. I think that that pertains as well to the to the barbershop scene where you have you know you 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 have Des who wanted to be something else but then became a barber and found happiness in that even though that's not what Joe assumes is his purpose. Yeah. You also have in that scene the idea that Joe weirdly enough for a jazz musician, has not been listening in his life. And 22 is the one who actually listens and, ex- and expresses an interest in these people. Yeah. Yeah, that was tricky because we felt like, okay, if he's a jazz musician, he would know this stuff, right? He would know to pay attention and try to do something uh, with what he's given. But we made the choice like, okay, that's the irony of it. He knows that in music, but he doesn't understand it in his own life. And uh, it's only by seeing his own life from a different perspective that he's able to kind of wake up to the things that he has, all the brilliant um, people and and situations that he that he does have already. At the same time, yeah, twenty two is a great. I mean, I feel like you know, uh, in any case, any of these films, the the characters are kind of projections of yourself. So for me, Joe, as I mentioned, it's a very personal story. But twenty two is also very personal because I feel like. There are many times in my life I have that sense of imposter syndrome that, okay, somehow I got here, but it was really because I was riding on other people's coattails. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I don't know what's going on. I I don't belong. I don't deserve this. And so 22, I think, you know, even though she has this veneer of like snarky, eh, life's not worth it, deep down, she's scared. She's afraid that she um, doesn't deserve to live. And of course, that's the, the the flip side of this, uh, the, the the very theme we're talking about, right? That everybody deserves life, and it's just a matter of looking at it the right way. Indeed, and uh, I just want to go back to the the beginning of the movie as well. So after after you do that uh, hilarious misdirect with all the ways that Joe could die, or <laughs> with you know literal banana skins, oh, yeah. <laughs> did you did you did you toy with anything else in there? You have a ton of bricks. You have them dodging traffic. You have the banana skins. Uh, <laughs> that's the rule of three. Yeah. No, the story artist had a whole field day with other options of how he might be <laughs> crushed. I think we literally had him walk by and there was like pianos dropping and safes and things like that. Um, uh, yeah, geez, I kinda, I'm trying to remember. But we did explore a lot there. 
After he goes on the slidewalk to the great beyond, he pushes back. He pushes back against the tide. And clearly, from what Terry says in the movie, he's the first person to do this in centuries. So from a storytelling point of view, from can, can you talk about how you and Kemp approach that? What was different and special about Joe that made him the one who makes who affects this change? We talked a lot about that because we felt like, boy, wouldn't everybody try to jump <laughs> off the slidewalk towards death if they possibly could? We, we we did have a whole subplot where it was Rasputin who was the last one to do this. And, you know, because his whole legacy is that they couldn't kill him. He, ca- he had like multiple lives. And so we thought that would be a clever, funny joke. In the end, we kind of sidestepped a lot of that just because we felt like, well, we we put up the like the shield around the thing to I think the idea being that if most people wanted to escape the slidewalk, they would just get stuck in that sort of magnetic power shield that that's on the outsides of that slidewalk. But in the long run, you're still kind of getting your getting used to uh, uh, the story, and and so we didn't sweat too much about that. And then you have all this, you know, you have such an incredible bombardment of what could have been dense and unwieldy exposition about the rules of the U seminar, about the rules of the uh, before life. How difficult was it to avoid that being dense and to introduce the audience to all these 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 grand concepts? Well, I hope, I mean, uh, it's, it's, I'm hoping that the audience isn't too aware of the um, exposition that we're having to like, you know, I always think of it, exposition as like, Here's what you need to know to, if you want to understand this movie. And so it's like a brochure in a bad way. But, you know, um, when you can do it in a way that's fun, when the material itself is interesting or engaging, um, you know, in the case of this film, we're talking about, you know, some deep philosophical ideas, you know, essentialism, nihilism, you know, kind of things that, that um, even though it's information, I think it's intriguing enough that makes people kind of go, huh, you know, where do my personality attributes come from? Oh, okay, you're saying it's from this place? Well, that's interesting. Maybe it really is. What if it is? So, you know, um, try to make it as in- engaging as we can. Try to dramatize it so that characters don't just spell things out. They're tr- sort of challenged by it or, or um, you know, in conflict with other characters. Those are all tricks that we try to use and then some of it is and this took a lot of doing back and forth like inevitably there's one screening where we way over explain everything and then there's another screening where we don't explain enough and so either way people are pissed at us you know they're they're either like just get on with the movie will you or they're like i didn't understand what was happening so it's it's finding that balance of what information do people want or actually what do they what do they need to know and then when do they want to know it because that's another thing if you can delay it a little bit instead of spoon feeding right up at the top that that seems to work too and uh, I know that the movie went through a number of different iterations. I know you had a, an earlier version that was mostly set in the before life. Mm. And uh, then you pivoted once Joe became the main character. Uh, 22 became the, the second lead, uh, essentially. Was there always a point where New York became a, a major player again, where, where Joe and 22 came to Earth at, at that point? Because that, that's what happens here with Joe coming in, coming back to Earth and finding himself in Mr. Mittens while 22 is in his body. Yeah, no, because as you say, the, the first draft of this, 22 was kind of our main character. And uh, uh, it, the whole plot pivoted around, will Joe be able to talk her into going to Earth? And what we found, and this is all, it's like, 
almost self-evident now when you look back at it. But at the time, we were blind to it. The idea of will someone go to live, uh, since we're all alive, we're like, okay, when's it going to, when's she going to decide? You know, like it just seemed so uh, predictable um, that she as a character was lacking that sort of dramatic drive. And so we we pretty early on at the same time discovered to convince someone what's so great about life by just looking at pictures or little movies is very passive. You know, so we wanted to dramatize the, the bulk of the film is all about like presenting this philosophy, why go live? Mm. What's so great about it? And so we said, well, we, we're going to have to bring them down to earth. You know, we're going to have to bring them into a situation where they can have an effect on the outcome of that scene instead of just standing and watching. Was it always uh, was it always a cat? For a while, we played around with a turtle. Really? I, I felt like dogs are kind of my favorite. I'm, I'm a dog guy. But uh, we'd already kind of done dogs uh, on, <laughs> on Up. So I, I felt like, okay, we got to do something else. Um, but we needed also something that could propel... Uh, themselves and get around like a goldfish you know you're kind of limited the character would have to carry them um, uh, so we wanted some other character that had autonomy that wouldn't be uh, turning heads in the middle of the city so you, you do have your limitation it could have been a bird I guess but um, cats seem to work quite well <laughs> cats can give you a haircut whereas a goldfish can't that's correct. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're back to that again. But yes. uh, uh, I know you've spoken about this in, in the past as well, Pete, and I know Kemp has as well, but uh, there has been or there can be some pushback in animated movies about situations in which people of color find themselves transformed into animals. Um, yeah. Was that something that you were, you and Kemp were aware of during the process or is it, you know, were you wary of that in terms of Joe becoming Mr. Mittens? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's unfortunate because there haven't actually been that many movies where it happens, but it's just that there have been so few films featuring African-Americans as characters mm-hmm. that it only takes two or three. And, and then that's a trope, you know. Um, and of course, there have been many, many of uh, films where the body swap happens to non uh, people of color. But it, it, it was definitely a thing. And we sweat over it a lot. You know, in the end, I feel like it was an essential element to tell the story that we were telling because you can't take Joe uh, and say, okay, we're going to, the whole movie is about you getting back to your life and then put him back in his life. You know, he needs to be close, but not quite there. So he needs to be transformed into something else. Our, our kind of hope is that, and this seems to be borne out by comments that, of folks that have seen the film, that at least in this movie, though Joe's not in his body, we see his body. Not only do we see his body, but we pass through all the spaces and are uh, enveloped in his life in a way that, you know, uh, most other films with the body swap, you know, well, now we're stuck somewhere else in some other uh, setting where we don't even get to really see all the culture and the specificity. And in this film, we do. At the end, that moment of stillness, we're 22 as Joe and then Joe later on, when he's composing that that tune, he fixates, he focuses on the sycamore seed pod. And that becomes, in a way, one of the most important symbols of the movie. Why a sycamore seed pod? Uh, let's see. I think it's a maple tree. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. We had we had them. I grew up in Minnesota, and they we had them there, and they have them in New York. We, we looked around. Again, this goes to the research thing. We, we actually got – someone had done – 
a chart. This was not someone at Pixar. This was someone, I think, who worked for the city, who basically specked out what kind of trees and where all these trees were in all of Manhattan and the boroughs. And so we looked at this map and we chose and we thought, oh, these these twirly seeds, um, they're they're really fun to play with. And I love in the movie that 22 is just sitting there and she looks up and she's looking at the leaves and this one thing, and it's almost like it chooses her, right? It's not like she reaches out and grabs it. It falls right into her hand. And I feel like that's an important distinction there too, that life chose her. And at that moment, she makes a switch from, I want nothing to do with this place to, to being like, okay, now I want this, you know, now I feel like this is, this is what I want. And it's the worst possible moment, of course, for Joe, because he needs his body back. So um, you try to, you know, craft these things such that the one choice uh, is working in, in opposition to the other character's choice so that the characters themselves and their choices are what's driving the movie. Anyway, that was the thinking. And of course, the pizza helps as well. But pizza always helps. Even if Mm -hmm. Terry says, stay away from those processed foods, not if it's (laughs) pizza, not if it's pizza. I am with you there. Uh, Pete, Doctor, um, we've managed to somehow cram a whole lot into 25 minutes. I could talk to you about this movie for hours, but it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you. Okay, so that was Pete Doctor. And next up is Kemp Powers, the film's co-writer and co-director. Uh, who is also the writer, by the way, of One Night Miami. What a month he is having. I had less time with Kemp than I did with Pete, sadly, uh, so we dived right into it and started with a big question about the fate of the film's lead character, Joe, voiced by Jamie Foxx. We also talk about Kemp's influence on the film's deeply weird first act, which establishes all those grand concepts like the Hall of You and the Hall of Everything. And as with Pete, we tackled that thorny question about Joe's body swap in the movie. I had a lot of fun talking to Kemp. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the sole spoiler special by the film's co-director Kemp Powers. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. Uh, Time is not my friend today, so I'm going to race straight into it. Last time we spoke, Kemp, I interviewed you a couple of months ago along with Pete and Dana, and we were talking about your responsibilities in the movie, and you said that you're as responsible for a lot of the surreal stuff in this movie as Pete. And so, I mean, the, the audacity, the ambition on display here still boggles my mind. How much of the that early bombardment of concepts, high concepts, were you responsible for in terms of things like the Hall of You, the You Seminar, the Hall of Everything, the idea of the lost souls? Where did all that stuff come from? Yeah, I mean, between me, Pete, and Mike, I mean, we, the three of us, were the ones who were, you know, in the trenches uh, writing, writing this thing. Um, when I think to things that, like, I had, again, and, and all of us had our hands on all of it. But when I think of things that kind of like more uh, originated with or that like were concepts that I did a lot of the writing development on, I, I believe um, like concepts like the like the Hall of You, this idea that it's like a museum of your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, when the, the when Jerry gives the the orientation um, ceremony, which is set up like basically like a PSA. Um, yes. I was a big fan of the the office, um, both the American and the English version. And there was a great episode where um, basically um, the company where, where the paper company got bought by this company called Sabre. And they all had to sit through a PSA hosted by Christian Slater. And it was like, so your company has been bought by Sabre. 
And I was like, yeah, we should do that. So let's get like a real smarmy Jerry, you know, holding a mug to do it. Um, and, um, and Terry, the accountant, um, I actually kind of that whole, the whole accountant subplot, um, we were kind of far along in the development and realize, and you know, you need a ticking clock, you need a, you know, a pseudo antagonist. Um, so I kind of wrote those scenes off in my office alone. And then we kind of started dropping them into the film, um, involving Terry, but those were, I think those were some of the. Our, our, our strange ideas that I, I spent a lot of my time working on. How much discipline does it take in a movie like this where you could do literally anything? You can make real any concept whatsoever. How much discipline does it take to, to know when to stop and to can distill all these heavy concepts, even for adults, these are heavy concepts, into something that's, that's very digestible? Well, in the beginning, we don't have a lot of discipline. That's the fun of it, is that we have to try these things. Um, you know, we we had five movies worth of ideas. I mean, we the stuff that we we had to peel back a lot. There, there's there's some wonderful concepts, wonderful ideas that didn't make it into the final film just because at a certain point it begins to obfuscate this this story you're trying to tell. And, and they were wonderful, beautiful ideas. I mean, I I fought for the the dream bubbles um on in the zone up until like the bitter end this idea that the mountains were literally you could see a city in the distance because of all the people dreaming you know and you could pop into one of their dream bubbles and you'd be in the middle of this freaky dream i loved it i loved it visually but it was honestly a distraction from that point in this in the story similarly our production had um steve pilcher had this great creature called a dream eater and it looked like a like an anteater like the size of a skyscraper and it was basically just walking the zone and like sucking up people's dreams. And so that's like why you, it, it was just, there was some really cool, we, there's such an abundance of cool ideas coming at you that you, you know, and you got, you know, storytelling is, and writing is killing your babies. So there, there was so much other cool stuff too that just didn't serve our central story, but that were, were beloved down to specific characters like we've talked about. But yeah, there, there was a lot of ideas. So the discipline comes when you kind of drill down on the story. But in the early stages, mm. there's a lack of discipline that's part of the fun of it, that you just, you're throwing all these crazy ideas and you're trying to make them work to the best of your ability. But then when you, you have to kind of accept when they don't work and start letting those ideas fall by the wayside. There's a lovely tension in the movie, I think, that runs through it between a traditional Pixar movie, you know, with a mismatched buddy duo on a on a quest, and this wild, experimental, almost art house, non-conformist, you know, it's very Joe in that way. It's iconoclastic in a way, almost. That that sort of non-conformist side. How do you how did you and Pete reconcile those two sides? The the experimental arty side and the traditional Pixar side? Um, I mean, it was a process. I, I, I mean, re- reconcile, I guess, is probably the, the right word because there were earlier versions of the film where that was the problem is that it felt like we had two very distinct movies that were fighting with one another. Um, and it was about intertwining. That was actually kind of my motivation for um, pitching the idea of the Terry accountant character, mm. allowing a, one of the creatures from this world to actually interact in the real world because it was so separate and the idea of going back and forth felt very clunky and wasn't working. And Terry gave us a, a vehicle for kind of going back and forth um, um, between the worlds. 
but reconciling it, it took, it took time. I mean, there, there were earlier versions where Joe never went back to earth over the entire film where the entire film took place in the great before conversely, there were versions where almost the entire film was a body swap comedy um, mm. where, and, and so, and that didn't work either for, for equally, you know, extreme reasons. So it was about calibrating it. And what's the central idea is that the, our character Joe is a guy who feels cheated by the universe, you know, on the best day of his life, he, he, he dies basically. And he's willing to do whatever he can to get back to his body. So what are, and, and just turning each of these segments into just one of several stumbling blocks, you know, it's, it's Alice down the rabbit hole, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think once we landed on that, it, that's when it kind of started to click because, you know, then you're not caught up as much on, okay, you can't have a character have this turn 30 minutes into the film. Cause it's like, again, each one is a stumbling block, you yeah. know, it's, it's Dorothy's journey to the wizard, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> then, then it starts to work. You mentioned Terry is a pseudo antagonist, and this is a movie that doesn't really have a villain. Uh, I think, I think that's really refreshing. Uh, there's Terry and there's Paul to an extent, but they're both antagonistic in, in tiny ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and look, at the end when at the end of the film when when Joe gets swallowed by 22, he's faced with the idea that he's kind of a villain. You know, the based on these these comments, these throwaway comments that he doesn't realize how negatively the comments of him and all these other so-called mentors have been impacting her. Yeah, I mean that's 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 absolutely it. I mean, Joe is the obstacle that he has to overcome. Uh, I, yeah. I think, and I I read a previous interview with you where you said that there were two scenes that were really difficult for you to nail and you and Pete to nail. One was a barbershop scene, and one was the scene where Joe reconciles with his mother. And it, does that speak in a way to that larger theme that in, in a way Joe's mother is the mentor that he is desperately seeking approval from and he can't quite get it? Was that why it was difficult to crack in a way? No, I mean, part of the reason why the Joe and his mother scene was difficult, God, that we're we're trying to, we're impacting some like heavy shit here. So, but I mean, the reason that was so difficult to unpack was for, for other reasons. It was the fact that, um, and the, and that scene, Joe is in the cat and 22 is in his body. And it was really, really important that Joe have a conversation with his mother and that conversation be a direct conversation. Okay, it not be through a third party, which is hard because he's stuck in the cat at that moment. So, you know, and and it was important for several reasons. Um, But but again, it was like this had to be a direct conversation. So initially we had Joe the cat whispering in 22's ear and we heard Tina Fey's voice. And that just like it didn't work at all. So, you know, Kevin Nolting, our our editor, you know, the idea was to to basically pull a ghost. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, you know, the film Ghost yeah. when uh, Patrick Swayze's in Whoopi's body, because that's the thing. It was like pull a ghost where with a camera turn, we see Joe, how his mother is perceiving that moment, which is that her son with a cat on his shoulders is talking to her down to the gestures that Joe would be making if he were in his body. Um and that took so much calibration because there was a lot of concern about it confusing people, confusing kids, confusing the audience. So I cannot tell you how hard it was to calibrate it just right so that we were able to get that emotional impact 
of Joe having a conversation with his mother directly without confusing the audience in a children's film. Mm. That was what made that so difficult. It was a, uh, it was really, it took a lot of versions of that. I, I, I love the way you do it though, with that camera just moving subtly behind Joe's mother. It's, it's, it's really nicely done. And speaking of things I think that are hard to get away with in a kid's film, killing your, your hero would be one of them. And Joe is obviously given a second chance at the end. Was that always the case? Were there, was there at any point an impetus to maybe let him move on? There was a lot. I mean, the first version that I saw, he died at the end when I came on board the film. And we went back and forth a lot. I mean, right up until, I think right before the audience preview. So there were, there are, there are half a dozen versions where, where Joe moves on at the end of the film. Some where he goes straight into the great beyond somewhere, you know, there was one that was actually pretty emotional that I think was everyone's second favorite behind our actual ending where Joe is on the slidewalk and the Jerry comes up behind him and she asked him if he'd be interested in being a mentor. And Joe says, sure. And she takes him off the slidewalk and they go are heading. And she was like, so great to have you, Joe. And she says, your life was one of my favorites. And that's how it ends. And it's, and don't get me wrong, it's waterworks. Like people are just like, oh my God. They're like devastated crying. But after that version and the lights come up, people got angry. They're like, and, and you know what made people so angry? Joe's mother, Libba. They said, you mean to tell me he dropped dead at that piano and his poor mother finds out that her son had a heart attack at his piano? And I own it. And so. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So. You know, it's um, you can't have It's a Wonderful Life and then kill George Bailey at the end. <laughs> well, you can if you stop half an hour before the end. Well, but. You, you can. I mean, but and just saying that it, as, as transcendent as that moment was yeah. and it worked in a, in a vacuum, as soon as the lights came out and anyone with a brain started thinking, they would go, oh, man, his poor mom. And, and again, look, that those are all like at the end of the day. You have to understand that how are you going to have a film about a guy who has misinterpreted his own life, who comes to understand that his life actually has value and is great and then not give him an opportunity to live better? You know, like you have to you have to 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 give him that opportunity. But yes, there were versions, very bold versions where Joe stayed gone at the end. And as bold as they were, it almost felt like we were doing it for boldness sake not to serve the story, not to serve the characters. We were doing it just to be bold. And while that might be fun and it might get a, a rise out of people, that's really not what we want to do with these films. I, I asked Pete about this as well. I want to I get your take on it also. And I know you've spoken about this in previous interviews, but uh, can you talk about the extent to which you and Pete were aware of the potential pitfalls of that body swap storyline where where Joe winds up in Mr. Mittens. You know, there's a history in animated movies of black characters turning into animals and there's been pushback against that. So can you talk about that from your point of view? Well, history meaning, I think, two the, movies. The, three, the, yeah, the two or three movies well, that have had yeah. black lead characters, yeah. And I think that's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem is that that's the history. That in a hundred years of animation, there is no history. So it's easy to draw you know, those, those types of things. Look, I, I mean, for me, you know, again, there were versions of the film where the body swap was dominated the film and it was important 
to to speak to that that again it's fun but it just be one of many stumbling blocks that joe has you know what i mean and that ultimately he spends as much time if not more time in his body and that even during and that's the, the way the the impact on the body swap itself is that even when the body swap happens you'll notice joe and 22 are never separated because mm-hmm. it was also key that even when the swap happens Joe, even not in his body, has control over and is there (laughs) and has control over what she's doing. You know, in a typical body swap, they would have then been separated. And then you would have spent the whole half the movie with him and the cat and her bumbling around on her own in his body. And because of the, you know, and, and that was and those were discussions you have where you say, like, no, he can't he can't lose control of, of his body for this film. So. I understand and 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 I think people like I, I understand where the the concern comes from, but this film is not is is not trying to do that to for like lowest common denominator reasons. It's a key part of the story we're trying to tell, you know? And um and again, animation has its own history that it has to reckon with because again we're so poorly represented, if at all. I mean, but before we were being, you know, if, if turned into other th- animals in these two other movies that, you know, both came out in the past 10 years, you know, we were lucky, lucky to even be portrayed as recognizably human for a lot of the history of, of animation. And, and I mean that, going back to Tom and Jerry and Disney films, you know, black characters weren't even depicted as recognizably human. So I think that's why people are rightfully sensitive about it. And it's going to take films that are thoughtful about their depictions of black characters and black culture, of which I hope ours is one, um, to hopefully build back up that good, build up the goodwill that animation hasn't cared that much to build up up until now. Kemp, I could talk to you about this movie for a very, very long time. I have many, many more questions, but I do have to let you go. But it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Cheers, sir. Thank you. And that was Kemp Powers. And now all that remains is this interview with the film's producer, Dana Murray. Again, enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on this very special spoiler special for Soul by the film's producer, Dana Murray. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Ah, it's a pleasure. It is a pleasure. And uh, I have to say, one of the benefits uh, of being able to watch movies at home on my computer uh, means that I can go through the credits in forensic <laughs> detail with a fine tooth comb. And I was I was watching the credits of Soul as I was rewatching it. And uh, I came to the special thanks at the end. And oh, my God, you've got some incredible names in the special know. thanks alone. I, I mean. Know. What's going on there? It's, it's incredible. <laughs> Ryan Coogler, Yo-Yo Ma, Kenya Barris, Quincy Jones, and you get into the additional thanks, and you have John Mulaney. Well, it's just an incredible cavalcade of people. Um, uh, without going into who did what, <laughs> uh, how do you how did you determine who 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 got into the special thanks category at the end of the movie? I mean, all of those names like have a different story and path, how like we ended up speaking with them or working with Uh them. Um, But I call it um, lucky and also just 
we're so grateful. I mean, Ryan Kugler, for instance, he's an Oakland Bay area guy and he lives here and he, um, we give him a space to write, you know, the Pixar is pretty big and we have different buildings, you know, so we, we give it, we've given him a space to write. So we, you know, and then we kind of like abused that scenario and being like, Hey, while you're here, you know, will you take a look at our reels? So that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, Oh, I see. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. All of them have a, have a different story, you know? Um, I, I I have a feeling we could spend the entire twenty five minutes chatting could, about the, the special thanks and uh, <laughs> but essentially in, in a way apart from Ryan Coogler who is basically you know you you're saying you don't get a room for free here Coogler you got to earn your keep <laughs> but essentially this is a film about it's a film well some film about many many things but it's a film about I, I guess finding your place in the world and becoming a mentor or learning from mentors as well and. I imagine a lot of the people. I know you have lots of uh, lots of uh, cultural consultants and religious consultants and all sorts of different consultants at the end of the uh, at the end of the uh, the film. But I imagine that was also foremost uh, on your minds as well. That these people are, are essentially mentors in a film about mentors. Yeah, um, a lot. It was cool to like. I'm just thinking of our audience preview specifically um, mm-hmm. because I feel like a lot of people in the audience specifically connected to the mentor mentee relationship. And um, I never, and yes, that was, that's, that was always an underlying theme in the film, but it wasn't like the main. So I was really happy after that test screening of just like how many people connected with that. So I love, I love that we got to show all these, um, I mean, a lot of it's comedy related, you know, how, how to find the good joke with the mentors, but (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I love that people really are leaning into that part of the film. And what else are you finding that people are leaning into with this movie? Because there is so much to get into with Soul. There, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's a million movies in one. And I am fascinated, having watched it now a couple of times, I'm fascinated by the fact that it, it constantly changes, it's constantly taking left turns. Um, yeah. And I know that that wasn't always the case initially in the early stages, at least it was largely set in the afterlife or the before life. I don't know how you refer to it officially. And then you pivoted and you, you changed. Um, so is that, is that, is that something that can you talk about that process and how things, how things change for the, for the movie over the time? Yeah. I mean, they're constantly evolving. We, we build, we built the story reels up seven times for this film. Um, to give you context, Inside Out had 10. This one, we only had seven. So it's like we we try to create a space at Pixar where we can fail and make a lot of mistakes. And every time we're rewriting and rebuilding the reels, the, the story is evolving. But I think um, what's been the coolest thing is how every single person we talk to kind of relates to the film differently. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of the young people that are more like late teens, college, like that feel a little bit like lost, like they're supposed to know their path or know their purpose or know their passion, you know? And it's like, I feel like young people are relating to that because they're like, well, what if I don't know what I want to do? So they relate to 22 a little bit. And then if the, you know, people later in life, you know, are relating to Joe's journey of like, being so focused on something that not even recognizing what in his life he was not paying attention to and to have presence. And I think um, the theme of improvising and um, that 
to me, I think like (laughs) this film coming out when it's coming out to me, that's the biggest thing that people have had to deal with in 2020 is like, nothing's gone according to plan. And so really having to just kind of take what we're given and turn it into something of value, even though that's not what we were planning for. So yeah, there's, it's interesting. There's just, there's a lot of different layers in there that yeah. people, yeah, every time they watch it, I think they get something else out of it. Yeah, absolutely. There really is. And also uh, in relation to the pandemic, another thing I noticed in the credits right at the very end was, you know, shot at Pixar, <laughs> but also in homes at least six feet away from each other, which which, <laughs> which I really appreciated. Yeah. Uh, it's good to know you guys are keeping safe. Uh, but there's a line, it's towards the end because there's a lot of, emphasis and focus obviously on the idea of your spark and your purpose in life and there's a line i actually wrote it down which is your spark isn't your purpose that last box comes when you're ready to live and the thing is you're pretty great at jazzing and that theme the the theme of jazzing the theme of improvisation that didn't come in until fairly late in the day which i guess is apt (laughs) in a way is that the case well yeah and we i Trying to remember. I think there was a lot of debate about using the term jazzing, but mm-hmm. I think for a long time we're like, well, let's just leave it in there until we come up with something that sounds better. And then because jazz was the perfect metaphor for what we were trying to say and that, you know, the imp- like improvising, it just felt right. And because it was t- 22 and it just felt like that would be something that she would say, you know, not, not knowing earth that well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I love that line. I really love that line. Yeah, it's a great line. And I think it also applies to the movie, the way the movie's made. And you wouldn't think necessarily of animation, certainly computer animation, uh, being something that is malleable, that can, that can roll with the punches. But you know, I, we spoke about this a little bit last time. You know, the Pixar famously, as you say, you know, you, you, you redid the reels seven times in this one, uh, you know, remaking Toy Story 2 from scratch in about five minutes. <laughs> All that sort of stuff. There is a, an element of jazz, of improvisation to animation, would you say? Absolutely. I mean, it kind of, I feel like I, I've contradicted myself in this topic because in a way there's <laughs> like, there's no improvis- it, there's no improvising in what is ending up in the shot in a way because everything has to be so planned out. But the story process is really where we get to improvise. and do jazzing, you know, and also I think Mm. working with the actors, I think um, a lot of actors, yes, they have the script, but they'll go off script, especially like Tina Fey and people that are Jamie Foxx. I mean, they just, Mm. they start going just on these funny tangents and it takes you to these places that maybe wasn't in the script, but you're like, that's so funny. We're getting it in there somehow. So I'd say Mm. those are the two areas, the story process and working with the actors is where we, where we get to improvise. And you've worked with Pete uh, a number of times now over, over the years. And can you talk me through the process of how this film came about and in, in a way of, of what he first said to you about this movie and how that's changed over time? What, what his intentions, what his intentions were with this? It was in 2015 or right after inside out was finishing up. Um, he, you know, it, the film couldn't have gotten more attention, had great box office. He won an Oscar. And I think he was coming off of that feeling a little bit 
unfulfilled in a way, like it didn't fix anything. It didn't, um, it didn't change anything really. He went back to his life and was like, wait, I've been focused so much on animation my entire life. Like, and you know, he's getting older and I think he just was kind of like, is this it? Am I supposed to just do this again? And at that same time, he was thinking about his children who were becoming adults. And he was thinking about when they were born, they kind of showed up with these personalities already of who they were. Mm. Um, and so those two ideas kind of came together for, um, and, it, and that's where it all started um, mm. from a very personal place. And so just to go back to that idea, uh, initially the, you know, the avenue you guys went down was to spend more time, a lot more time actually in, you know, the great before and, mm -hmm. and the afterlife and to focus on 22 as well. So can you talk about that early iteration, what that, what that might've been like and, and the point at which uh, you and Pete decided to pivot and, and then bring Kemp in as well on that one? Yeah, we, um, we thought it'd be really fun to tell a story about a soul that didn't really think earth was worth it. Like, Oh, that's a smelly rock. People are gross. I don't want to go down there. And we quickly learned in that first script that like, you can't really convince a soul to go to earth when she's never been, because we all know that it's worth living like us down here. And so we, we did, we realized like, okay, we need, we need to go to earth to, so that she can really see like, what, what are those things that are kind of like unexplainable that make life worth living? Um, and so that's when we decided to come down to earth and that's when we decided to make Joe the main character. And then we were playing with kind of like what his passions were. We tried actor, I think scientists, I think we were joking around about animator, all those things could have been really boring to watch on screen. So then we were like, okay, musician like that. We leaned into that because we were like, that would be exciting and fun. And then, um, but we didn't want it to be like rock star, like we didn't want him, we wanted it to be something noble and you don't go into jazz to be famous or rich, right? You go into it because you have a passion and love for it. So that as soon as we found that, we just, you know, and one of our consultants, um, Dr. Janetta Cole, she, she's like, well, it's black improvisation, I keep messing up this word, black improvisational music. And yeah. so um, once we chose that, we were like, well, Joe has to be black, you know, is the jazz that comes from, you know, it's a great contribution from the African-American culture. So we wanted to do that justice. And so that's when we were like, we need lots of help. And that's when we brought Kemp on and started building up our trust and all of that. And I know that uh, I read an interview with Kemp where he said that the two scenes that were hardest were the barbershop scene and the confrontation slash reconciliation with Joe's mother towards the end of the film. From your point of view, what was tough about those scenes to crack? It's funny because he, he and Pete, I know that they rewrote and they rewrote and they rewrote to get it right. But like from the beginning, I always felt like those scenes, the core of them always worked. I think what they were rewriting is just fine tuning. Um, okay. And a lot of what makes those scenes work is once you get the actors going. Yeah. I mentioned this briefly to you guys last time. One of the things that, that, really um, astonished me about the movie, you know, being a huge fan of Pete's previous Pixar films, is how 
grown up this movie is in terms of not just in terms of the concepts it's tackling, but in terms of its tone as well. It feels it doesn't always feel like an animated movie, if that makes sense. It feels like it's very grounded. It feels like it's very ambitious. It doesn't feel like it's talking down to its audience in any way, shape or form. Was that something that was important to you guys from an artistic point of view? I think this is the most artistic Pixar movie yet. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think something that we are intentional and aware of is that we don't want to talk down to kids. We, I mean, the, these films start from a, um, a personal place. We want to make films that we want to watch. We all have kids, so we, we definitely are constantly keeping them in mind and making sure that they can follow story. Something that we did on Inside Out and we also did on this film was um, yeah. early on. All We had the entire crew bring their kids in for a screening of Rough Reels. So like when it was still like in storyboards. And I think what's always so incredible is it's usually the parent or adult in the room is assuming that the kid's not going to really follow or understand. And almost always the kid will interrupt their parent and be like, no, I am, this is what's happening. And so um, we've kind of learned in the process, in the making these movies that like, it's usually the kids go with you and it's adults that are um, assuming that kids don't follow. So, mm. yeah, I think often the kids are the smartest ones in the room is what I've learned. <laughs> 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 I mean, yeah, there's themes, though, of course. There's like yeah. midlife crisis themes that maybe a kid's not going to relate to or understand. Yeah. But, yeah. Were you were you worried about because it's a very quiet film as well, and there's this great stillness to it, and a, you know, a, 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 a great sense of calm about some of the scenes. And I, I imagine sometimes with animated movies and with certain animated animation studios, the emphasis is always on to keep things moving keep things moving, you know, to keep things ticking along, have a bit of comedy comedy business here, have a bit of emotional business here. Soul takes its time. It's only 90 minutes long, really, but it takes its time. There's a moment, obviously, when Joe, or 22 in Joe's body, looks at that, that sycamore seed pod. Mm. There's Joe's composing of, you know, when he really, really enters the zone towards the end as well. And you can feel the movie breathe. Mm -hmm. And that's a clearly deliberate choice on on your part. Of course, you know, we want to make sure we don't lose our, the, the audience, the kids. Um, and that's why we do those test screenings. And I, I was actually early on, I was probably the one that was most worried about the jazz piece of like, okay. like, cause I'm just, before this film, I didn't really listen to jazz. You know, it's uh -huh. definitely a genre that I'm starting to explore and get into. And I love John Peter Batiste and he's really made it more appealing for me. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so we had a lot of conversations with him about like, he's like, I'm going to make this like user friendly jazz. So that we're hoping that we can attract like a new generation of jazz lovers. But yeah, you're right. I think our editor makes really, really good choices. Um, to slow things down and have quiet moments. But I, I think that kids actually need those quiet moments because they're taking in so much information in these films that I, I don't feel like, I feel like films that don't let any time to breathe suffer in the opposite way, because you might just lose the kids because they, they're, they're just processing yeah. too much. Yeah. Yeah. 
but there's a, there is a lot to process, as I, as I say. I mean, the um, some of the concepts in this movie are are astonishing, and the uh, the way that uh, you know, you guys, Pete and Kemp as well, managed to parcel out that information uh, early on. So when Joe goes to the grade before, and he's we're being bombarded with these ideas, the the U seminar, the Hall of Everything, the Hall of You, the afterlife, the the slide walk up to the uh, the great beyond. These are all pretty heavy duty concepts as well. Is it tricky to make a movie set in the afterlife and avoid talk of heaven and hell. It's mentioned, obviously, but heaven and hell and God and the devil and all that sort of stuff and Mm -hmm. focus on these more sort of esoteric concepts in a way. Yeah, we um, we spoke to early on. Um, we did a ton of research and we spoke with a lot of religious and spiritual leaders and um, Mm -hmm. All of those religions often talk about the afterlife. So we were intentional about not going to the afterlife. Like no one really talks about pre the before. So that's why we wanted to focus the whole film really in the great before instead of going. There were scenes that early, early on that never made it into production about like exploring, like if Joe did go into the light in afterlife and we were very much like, that's a lot of landmines. Let's just not go there. So that's why we we were intentional intentional about keeping it in the great before. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. did you call it the 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 before life as well when you're just casually referring to it? Uh, that's that's why I started calling it. So uh, you know, yeah, I we land we we landed on the great before. Um, I don't remember. I think we always called it the great before. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. Listen, I'm, I'm offering you the before life as a possibility. You can okay. use it shorthand okay. around Pixar if you want to do that. that you know, okay. that's that's yours. That's Thank that's you. completely free. <laughs> but um, but uh, there's just a, a couple of last things to, to talk about before before I let you go as well. And obviously, um, it it focuses on the central relationship between Joe and Twenty Two. Can you talk about what changes that went through as well? Yeah. Um, you know, we all, we thought it was a really fun concept from the beginning of like a, a soul who doesn't want to live meets a soul who doesn't want to die. And just the, the contrast there in both, um, in, in, in their, in the characters of how much fun you could have with them on this journey. Um, and I think, we were really trying to figure out how Joe was going to prove to 22 why, why life was worth it, why, why it was worth going down to earth when, you know, we all experience pain and sadness and crazy 2020s. (laughs) But um, so I think like it really evolved in the, in the great before, like these set pieces of like going into, um, the scene where it's like Joe's life museum. Mm-hmm. I think that that was one of the most impactful ways that we got to show Joe as like show his life, which was really um, important also culturally to our culture, like for all of our cultural consultants and culture trust, we wanted to show like parts of Joe's life that made him human. And um, I think the most impactful thing was that you see these scenes later in um in the scene where Joe's playing the piano and having all the realization of, of memories through his life. And like, and then, so we, even though in Joe's life where he's seen it in the museum early on, 
he thinks it looks pathetic and sad. You're seeing these same moments later that are beautiful. Like he's eating the piece of pie alone at a diner, which looks really depressing. But then we show it in this way later where he's just like, he's experiencing a moment in life of like pure happiness of like the taste of the pie alone. You know, so it's just like switching those moments. Um, I think that really evolved and was really hard to like nail down. And that's all, that's all visual storytelling right there. Is that ultimately the theme for you? The, 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 again, there are so many themes and there's so many things to take away from this movie. But for me, one of the things that I took away from it was, you know, to live your life in the now, to live your life in the moment and to, and to, you know, realize that it is the little moments that make life worth living, that we can all be too focused on the, on the bigger picture or on notions of happiness and what is success. But ultimately it is about taking pleasure from a sycamore seed pod or a pizza. Yeah. It's that simple, really. It's that simple. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, just knowing that every life has merit, every life has value. You don't have to like succeed to be something big and important and powerful or make money. It's like your life is worth living and, it, and it's right there and it's up to you to like turn into something of value and be present and enjoy it. Well, I, I will get right on that. <laughs> it's taken me a while, but I'm, go- I'm going to give it a shot. Get outside today. Uh, well, no, it's too late now. It's it's oh. eight, eight o'clock. I'm I'm, oh. I'm staying in. I'm okay. staying miserable outside. Uh, but 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 the minute it's nice, I'm outside. Uh, Dana, okay. it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. And that was Dana Murray, the first sole creator I spoke to, and the last one you heard. And that is it for part one of our Soul Spoilers special. Come back tomorrow for the second part in which Helen O'Hara, Amon Warman, Alex Godfrey and I argued the toss over the movie. Until then, it is goodbye from me. Watch out for those banana skins and falling pianos and manhole covers while you're at it. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.